Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Grateful you joined us today. Episode 6 kickstarts our productivity with Carson Tate, creator of the Productivity Style Assessment and the Work Smarter, Not Harder program. Carson is an internationally renowned productivity expert and coach with strategies featured in top-tier business media, including Bloomberg Business Week, CBS Money Watch, Fast Company, Forbes, The New York Times, Shape, USA Today, and Working Mother. Carson, it's wonderful to finally connect with you, especially after all of the, the books, Work Simply, that I've bought for, for some of the new workshops that have been created in the last few years. Welcome to the, to the Chointcast. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm glad to be here with you and your listeners today. Wonderful. Now, your LinkedIn profile includes a fun descriptor, spiritual butt kicker, and <laughs> you, you don't see that every day. Can you tell us where that comes from? Absolutely. Well, a piece of my work is about helping our clients reclaim that beautiful spirit that's inside of them that gets lost in our frenetic, overwhelmed, crazy, busy lives. And so at times it takes a little bit of butt kicking to get get it back out, you know, kick away those bad habits and um, the addiction to email and all the other things that we use to hide behind and not see our true selves. Wonderful. Well, speaking of that, how do people find you? They can go to my website, CarsonTate.com, or I'm on all the socials at the Carson Tate. Very good. So turning to your book, and again, Carson's Tate, Carson Tate's book is called Work Simply. Uh, turning to your book, yours is a very diagnostic book. At least that's one of the ways I describe it to, to clients and, and colleagues. And a big part of that is there's a wonderful outline diagram facing your introduction page. It's, it's a great picture allowing the reader to pinpoint very specific chapters for very specific productivity issues. Where did you get this wonderful visual idea from? Well, that idea is actually intentionally designed to serve two types of thinkers, thinkers that I call the arrangers and the visualizers, because the reality is we don't all think and process information the same way. Some of us are more linear, analytical thinkers, and some of us are more visual, intuitive thinkers. So the mind map that you're referring to is intentionally designed to support my visual intuitive thinkers. Good. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. It turns out that part of my own style, if you will, includes that visual component. But going back to more to the beginning of the book, how would you even define an individual work strategy? Yeah, so your work strategy is how you plan and allocate your effort across your goals, activities, and time periods. And do you tie to that as ener to energy as well? I do, um, but initially I need our clients to be thinking about their goals, activities, and time, and then we'll layer in energy after that. Very good. There's two roadblocks that you mentioned uh, in your book, two roadblocks to success. One of them is locus of control, and another one is this interesting term called the shoulds. Can, <laughs> can you unpack those for us? Absolutely. Well, when you think about working simply, 
you know, the solution to the disorganization and the chaos that's threatening your productivity and your ability to live fully really starts and ends with you. So in my work with clients, I've found that we need to go back to Julian Ritter, which is and his theory around locus of control. And he asserts that you have either an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. And an internal locus or control is a worldview where you believe that your success or your failure is a result of your own efforts. An external locus of control, you believe that other people, events, fate, chance, are responsible for everything that happens in your life. And so if you want to work smarter, not harder, and simplify your life, then you've got to adopt this internal locus of control and understand that you are at choice and you can choose to work differently. The second roadblock that I've found is something I've called the shoulds. And the shoulds are those voices in your head telling you that you should do this because, and the because could be because of cultural messages. You should do this because you're a VP. You should do this because you're a working parent. You should, you fill in the blank. And the problem with the shoulds is that they quickly become a runaway train. And you start listening to them and you start doing things that might not be in alignment with your goals, with who you really are. And all of these shoulds lead you to overcommit, which gets in the way of you achieving your goals. Now, to address the shoulds, you have an acronym defined, at least spelled P-O-W-E-R, power. So um, tell us, walk us through power and how that can help us overcome the shoulds. Right. So the shoulds, you know, the voices in your head. So we need a way to really evaluate the messages that you're hearing from your shoulds, because I don't want you to be shoulding all over yourself. That never works. And so power is the acronym that we use. And the P stands for priorities. And so as soon as you're hit by a should, the first thing that I want you to do is ask yourself, whose priorities are these? So often the should points to someone else's. So is this should your priorities? Is it maybe your significant others? Is it your companies? Is it your bosses? Is it your best friends? Whose priorities does this should align with? Then the second thing to ask yourself is the O, which stands for opportunities. Now, sometimes a should can be hiding an opportunity. You know, it could be an opportunity to take on a stretch assignment. It could be an opportunity to learn something new that's going to help you achieve your goals. So you want to just look at, are there any embedded opportunities in this should? Then the W in power stands for who. So who is making this request? Because shoulds often come in the form of a request. Is it your boss? Is it your child? Is it your best friend? Is it your significant other? Our relationships definitely influence how we respond. So we want to know who is making the ask. Then the E stands for expectations. So at this point, we're looking at the should and looking at whose expectations are embedded in this should. So for example, 
Um, I'm a working mom. And so frequently I get the working mom guilt and I will feel like I should bake the cupcakes for the bake sale from scratch. Well, that really doesn't make any sense. And the expectations that are behind that are my expectations around what a mom would do for her child. So these are cultural expectations. It could be gender. It, again, could be your company. We want to look at those underlying beliefs or expectations that are embedded in the should and see if they actually align with yours. And then the R, the last one in the power acronym, R stands for real. I mean, get real. What is this should really about? And what's the worst thing that could happen if you said no? It sounds like a great self-coaching methodology, and I'm already thinking of ways to apply it. <laughs> yes. Well, and Jim, you know what it does? It just gets you to pause. So it moves you from that reactive state to a place where you can pause and then thoughtfully respond. And going through the power, I call it the power no that's the full acronym. I mean, this takes seconds. Obviously, it took me a couple of minutes. But once you learn it, you can go through your head pretty quickly. And it just gives you a space, space to pause. I love it. You know, there's a there's a very brief part of my personal leadership philosophy, part of my idiosyncrasies, if you will. And one of it, one element says, please minimize false urgency. And to me, that has a lot to do with the alignment and the expectations of others that that come up in power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your, your productivity style assessment reminds me quite a bit of our Academy Leadership Energized to Lead profile. Now, you mentioned already that, you, that you're a visual person on, on those styles, but tell, tell us about the other three productivity styles and if you have any elements besides the visual one in yours. Sure. So there are four productivity styles that we say folks can fit into. So they are the prioritizer, the planner, the arranger, and the visualizer. The prioritizer and the planner tend to be more analytical, linear, fact-based, detailed, sequential, planned. And the arranger and the visualizer tend to be more visual, intuitive, kinesthetic. They're synthesizing, they're brainstormers, they're my risk takers. And the arranger and the visualizer are the ones that do their best work without a lot of boundaries. Uh, so lots of color, um, ideas, mind maps. The prioritizer and the planner tend to do their work best with checklists and formulas and spreadsheets, very linear thinkers. And I'm actually a combination of the arranger and the planner. I'm a combination of the prioritizer, the arranger, and visual. Although my prioritizer, I believe my visualizer are the, the strongest ones, just to, to share back with you. So that's, yes. So how do you advise clients to overcome the three saboteurs, according to your definition, saboteurs, of our ability to focus? Uh, intense, emotion, intense emotion, physical discomfort, and psychological insecurity. But I think the first step is just to realize that these are the things that will undermine our ability to focus. Uh, intense emotion in our 
in, in the business world, I've found tend it tends to be discredited. So we don't think that after we've had a heated exchange with a colleague or maybe we've received disappointing news, we don't believe that that emotional turmoil is actually going to impact our ability to turn around and focus on a very, you know, I'd say cognitively demanding task. And it does. We also, at times, I've found people want to think, act like they're machines. Well, you know, if you are hungry, tired, um, dehydrated, it's going to be very difficult to work. And we also tend to discount psychological safety. Um, so it's safe to express your ideas. Um, it's a safe place to work and experiment. All of these things tend to be discounted. So step one is just to realize they have a pretty detrimental impact on your ability to focus. And then the second step, what can you do about them? Well, when it comes to intense emotion, I'd say that folks need to tap into music, humor, movement, and breath. So do you have, if you're a music person, let's build a playlist that helps you re-energize after maybe some disappointing news. If you need to calm down, let's choose some different music. Movement, physical movement helps you really discharge that negative energy. Even just walking around your cube or up and down the hallway will help tremendously. I think that there's a lot of really funny videos on YouTube. Use humor. So tap into YouTube and laugh a little bit. And then breath. So if anyone is doing any type of mindfulness or meditation or yoga, there's some great breaths that will help you emotionally reset. And then if you're hungry, you got to eat. So are you keeping packs of granola bars or nuts at your desk so that you can stay fueled throughout the day? Are you making sure that you stay hydrated and drinking plenty of water? Those are really important when it comes to the physiological discomfort. Sleep, you know, at some point you can't run on Red Bull and um, whatever your choice of caffeine or, or upper is, you have to get sleep. And then psychological safety, this is a little bit harder when you think about this. This one is um, how do you create an environment for yourself and for your team where it's safe to share ideas? Um, how do you create an environment where it's safe to explore and experiment? Um, if you don't feel safe, you're always going to be kind of checking behind you psychologically, and that can undermine your ability to focus. I like that a lot, especially the tie to, to energy, Carson, and, and also the part at the end, realizing that what we're really trying to do as leaders, if you will, is to create the right environment where not just ourselves, but others can thrive. In, mm -hmm. in chapter six, you have, uh, which, is, which is titled Invest Your Time Wisely, you describe Jeff Weiner's approach to addressing urgent versus important tasks. How do we distinguish between those two and what tips do you have for us? So the urgent task I've found really tend to be other people's priorities. Um, it's things that people want from you and they tend to want it from you now, um, maybe due to a lack of planning on their part or they've just been busy themselves. And then the important, the distinguished, the, what distinguishes the urgent from the important to me um, beyond that the urgent comes from other folks is, is that the important task 
are those tasks that are on what I call the revenue line. And the, your revenue line is where you are making money for your organization or supporting the revenue creation of your company. This, these important tasks typically tie to your unique abilities. They typically enable you to showcase your strengths and they are always in alignment with your goals and the strategic goals of your organization. And so when I look at a task list for myself or if I'm coaching someone, the first step for us is where's your revenue line? So identifying that. And then once we know where that is, it's very easy to distinguish the important task from the urgent task. The urgent task, if they aren't other people's priorities and they are actually yours aligned to that revenue line and they're urgent now, there was a breakdown in the system. And so we want to get them completed, but then we want to go back and use what has been used for many, 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 many years in the military very successfully, an after action report or an after event report. What happened to create the sense of urgency that this task became urgent. Let's pause for a moment here with a fun message for our audience. What places to visit remain on your bucket list? Choink is teaming with Amazonia Expeditions, the Amazon jungle's leading ecotourism operator, to introduce the Amazon Leadership Experience in 2018. Join us in the Tuayo Reserve to experience the most biodiverse region yet studied in the world while also becoming an energized leader. Please contact us if your organization is interested in this unique once-in-a-lifetime experience. I like I like your reference to AARs. <laughs> Obviously, our academy leadership group, with us all being former military officers, we're we're big fans of those. So nice nice shout out there. Well, they work, as you know, Jim. They work really well, and the structure around them helps move you from a blame game. It's not that at all. You state the facts, you make, you analyze what happened, and then you put together a plan of action to go forward. And it's very, very effective. Absolutely. Nothing better for, for team accountability when it when done properly. Your, That's right. Your chapter nine, I think, is could be a, a separate recommendation for the book just on that chapter alone because you take on email. It's lovely. Could you walk us through your agility circle approach to email? Yes. And so I'm going to start by talking, by just making one statement about email that ties into the other question you asked around urgent versus important. So the reality is, is your inbox is nothing more than everyone else's to-do list for you. So once you've framed it and, and put it in context, then the second step is to use what I call our email agility circle. Because once you have triaged your email in your day, and I'm hoping that you aren't starting your day with email, but you're starting with a task that's on your revenue line, driving your goals and objectives, once you're in your inbox, then I need you to get in and out as quickly as possible. And so the email agility circle is designed to help you read and respond to incoming messages faster. And so there are four steps, read, decide, act, and contain. And so the first step is to read. And I know you're thinking, Jim, to yourself and your listeners probably are as well. I'm reading my email. Well, I know you're reading your email, but I'm going to suggest that you read your email when you have the time 
and the energy because we forget that email is a very energy intensive activity when you have the time and the energy to make a decision. Because what happens so often is we open our inboxes, we don't have enough time because we're in line for coffee, we're waiting for our conference call to start. We open it up and we read it and we don't do anything with it. So then we have to come back and reread it and that waste precious time. So for example, if you receive 100 emails a day and it takes you about a minute or so to read those emails, that is an hour and 40 minutes of your day. Now, if you don't do anything with them other than reading them and you have to come back and reread them, those 100 email messages are now gonna cost you th over three hours, three hours and 20 minutes. So step one, read your emails when you have time and energy to do step two, which is to decide. And to decide, you ask yourself, what is it? So what type of email is this? And does it require action by me? If action is required by you, that's step three. You've got three choices. You can execute, so respond quickly. You can delegate it. So if you don't have the knowledge, the authority, and the accountability to respond, forward it to the appropriate person, and you're done or you can convert that email to a task. And the reality for most of us is that we end up having to convert our emails to a task because we can't do them that fast. There's, you need to read, you maybe need to draft a document, you need to edit something. It's not a quick response. And most of the messages that end up in our inbox, we own, so we can't delegate. So to convert an email to a task, you can change the subject line to your next action step you can copy or move it to your task manager. You can copy or move it to your calendar. You could also send it to, if you're using Outlook, you can send it to Evernote. The objective is to make some type of conversion so that you know what your next action step is. If no action's required, delete it or file it. And then the fourth step is actually a summary step, the contain step. I don't want your inbox to be a catch-all or junk drawer. So the contain step, use your calendar for date and time specific items. Task manager of your choice to track your task. The trash can delete button for those items that do need to be deleted. And you put things in folders that you need to retrieve at a later date. Great containment strategy. And I really, I really like the way you uh you ask us to, to get rid of the ones quickly that we can. I think that's a, a huge thing. I think there's a lot of procrastination in returning to emails that consumes a lot of time and energy. You also mentioned delegation about email, and you, you tackled this separately on pages 189 and 190 with five leadership principles. Can you summarize this for us? Sure. So the first... I would, I would call it a principle or really a strategy. The first delegation strategy is Stephen Covey's, and it's be clear on the goal, but open on the path. So what happens is too often we delegate a task, and we're not clear with the person that we've delegated the task to what the end state is, what is the goal. So you want to be crystal clear on what success looks like, and then stand back and let that person choose how they're going to achieve that goal. That's the open on the path part because micromanagement 
never works. It undermines people's um, ability, I think, to think innovatively and creatively. It also creates mistrust and people just don't want to work for someone that micromanages them. So step one, be really clear on the goal. What is the outcome? I mean, paint a really clear picture so that person can see it and then stand back and let them have the freedom to choose how they're actually going to execute. And then the second step is to set people up for success. I mean, I might be naive, but I think most people really want to do a good job and perform at the highest levels. So when you delegate to someone, the first thing you need to check in with is where might there be gaps in their knowledge? Do they know and have access to all the tools that they need to successfully achieve this goal? Then the second thing you need to do is also define the limits of authority. So where can this person make independent decisions and where do they need to come to you? So they need so that they've got the freedom to work towards that goal, but know when to check in. And then steps three and four are very specific to my body of work around the productivity style assessment. So I suggest if you're a leader and you're delegating that you understand the productivity styles of the people that you're delegating to. So if you're de delegating to um, an arranger, there's some very specific strategies that you would use with them versus if you're delegating to a prioritizer. And then the fourth step is also in alignment with my body of work around productivity style. And it says that you really want to communicate in a way that you can be heard and understood when you're delegating. And each of the different four productivity styles have a different communication style. So as a leader, you want to understand how they will receive information and tailor your communication to that. And then the last step, step five, works across the board, and it's to simply follow up. I think all of us have been on the receiving end of a project that's been delegated to us, and then there's radio silence, and we never hear from our leader again. They never check in. We're unsure of when it's due. When you delegate to someone, establish right away the due date, and then also establish when you're going to check in. When will you follow up with them? And how will you follow up? Are you going to do it in person, via Skype, or you can do it via email? So that the person you've delegated to knows the check-in procedures before they start the task. I like that a lot. It's worth reiterating, Carson, that your book is a lifetime diagnostic tool. And I really like framing it that way. It's so built for, for action in an organized way. Can you share with our audience your additional online resources and tools that so there's continued support for our quest to become more productive? Sure. So there's always fresh content on my blog, on my website, carsontate.com. If you're interested in taking the productivity style assessment, there's also a link on my website, carsontate.com, where you can take that. And then we have a whole suite of programs and products that we've designed to support you. We have a membership program, ongoing support on your path to stay productive. We've got workbooks, we've got online courses to tame your inbox, work well with others, and work smarter, not harder. Fantastic. Last question, Carson. Uh, looking ahead, what projects are you working on now you can share with our audience? 
Yeah, so I am in the early stages of my second book. Well, I hope I'm on your early reading list. I'd love to to take a whirl at that and see what you've been working on since since your wonderful book, Work Simply. Thanks again, Carson, for, for joining us today on the Jointcast. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Academy Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk. 